Bibles to the Gospel of John once again as we continue our study here. And we have completed a very powerful passage of Scripture as we have gone through chapter 11 through verse 45, uh, 1 through 45, and seeing the events and the uh, interrelationships that have been going on between Jesus and his disciples, between Jesus and Martha, between Jesus and Mary, between Jesus and the crowds that worshiped around him. And uh, we, we find that uh, in all of this, uh, the challenge of Jesus Christ is to draw people into a right relationship with her. Go from belief to belief, with a capital B, to belief with all caps. Um, that we might move from saying, I believe these facts, and I, and I see the signs, I see the evidences, and I want to hold to that. But then when it calls upon me to do something, when it stretches me beyond my comfort limit, I'm not so sure I believe. And Jesus Christ is a master at this in his day. Uh, when the young man comes to him and says, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He says, well, uh, keep the commandments. He says, well, I've done that since I was a youth. He's like, oh, then give everything you have away and come follow me. You see, he was ready to believe the law. He was ready to believe what he was comfortable believing because he's been living that since he was a youth. But then Jesus stretches him out and says, come follow me. And that's going to require you to, to slaughter your oxen at home, to surrender it all, uh, to use the implements to burn the oxen as a burnt sacrifice. And who am I referring to that did all that? Elisha. Give it all up. Come follow me. And that's when we go from belief to belief. But Jesus Christ wants us to go even farther to belief. Where we are willing, like many of the disciples, can't see all of them yet because we still have one son of perdition among them, that isn't quite ready to take up their cross and follow him. To say, no matter the cost, I will follow you, even to the end of my life. Not just the end of what I'm comfortable with, not just a change of life, going from, going from uh, being a follower of my own interest to being a follower of Jesus Christ, but then I'm going to follow you, even willing to surrender my very life, everything dear and valuable to me, I give to you. And that's why Jesus says, if you love anything in this earth more than me, you are not worthy of me. That's the all caps belief. So if your children, your spouse, your parents, whatever it is, whatever relationship that is so dear to you that would replace that of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's statement is, you are not worthy of me. And the question is, at what point are you confident that you are a believer in Jesus Christ? And that is a great challenge. And my challenge to you is, don't be on the bubble. <laughs> I don't want to evaluate that. I don't want to be the one to look at it and say, well, is this lowercase belief enough? The evidence from God's word is that it is not. I believe the information. I believe the story. I believe that. Uh, we're going to encounter a lot of people that believe all the things that Jesus did and all the things that he taught. They just didn't like the idea of following him as God incarnate, who he was. We're going to see some other people that have this capital B belief, and you might say, well, is that enough? And, and my question is, is that enough for you? You see, when we start trying to find the minimum, we are evidencing something in our heart 
And that is that we don't recognize who Jesus really is. His demands are righteous. He is our creator. And instead of saying what is the minimum, we should be challenging ourselves, I need to get to the all caps belief so that I have every confidence that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, that I will lay it all on the line. I, there's no relationship more valuable to me than my relationship with God. There's no thing on this earth that is of any value to me. My own breath itself. If it betrays me before Jesus Christ, I will give it up. I do not want anything between me and my Savior. And so we're going to see these different levels of belief in our passage today. We have already encountered them throughout John. It is probably one of the most powerful things John wants to teach, not only in this gospel, but in all of his writing, is that we need to press ourselves. Are we confident? Why does John write, First John, I write these things, that you may know that you have eternal life, not hope, as in wishful thinking, and, and hope in the Bible is a sure thing. Hope that we use is kind of a wishfulness. And so not wishfulness, not maybe, I, I think I am. Um, I, I, I might even avow it before people, but still question it in my heart. Am I a follower of Jesus Christ? But that I might know it. And if you go through 1 John, you've heard me repeat that over and over again. It is all focused on... We confess our sins in 1 John 1. If we love God, keep his commandments, and we love his people, we love his word, and we're going to get into all of those things here in a little bit. When we get to about four chap three chapters later, here in John, we're going to invest in all those things again as the foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to receive the promises of God and to walk in the power of God on earth. And so we come to... The last real miracle of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. It is really um, the, the last sign that he's going to give, other than the sign of his own resurrection. The last sign is the resurrection of Lazarus that he has here in this passage. Um, it is really bringing to a close his public ministry um, in terms of his healing and exerting power in that manifestation of signs. He's still going to be publicly ministering because he's going to have the triumphal entry, of course. There's going to be a public teaching moment. And he's even publicly ministering from the cross uh, if you, and in his trial. We're going to talk about that a little when we get to that point. But this is really the close of what we think of, of his public ministry. And, his, and in fact, when we get to the end of this chapter, it's going to say um, the Passover was coming. It was very soon. So we're very close to the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. And John is not going to focus, like the other gospel writers, so much on the events as he is upon the teaching of Jesus, specifically to the disciples, a very private settings of most of his teaching that is really preserved for those who are the all-caps followers of Jesus Christ, the real believers. And so this is really one of our last, not the last, but it's one of the last opportunities for us to see uh, this, this distinguishment between what you believe and its depth. And there's still one more that we're going to visit here in a few weeks. 
But this one is going to be our, the last main one that we're going to see in a very public fashion. So, in verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen the things Jesus did believed in him. What did they believe? Well, they believed in him because of the signs he had done. To what extent are they going to believe in him? Well, we're going to see that really when we get into chapter 12. Um, it's going to come up again uh, because it's going to all be said again of uh, why people have come. Uh, and they're still believing, and, but then it's not going to be long before they start yelling out, crucify him. Same crowd. How they go from Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him, you say, little be belief. That's how. This week, the big news item for Christianity, and if it was a big news item in all the media, you know it was bad. And that was Joshua Harris recanted his faith in Jesus Christ publicly and also announced his divorce, with the separation divorce from his wife. You don't know Joshua Harris. He uh, wrote the book, um, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, um, which is trying to take a biblical approach to courtship. He wrote that when he was 21. He had been a public speaker in the homeschool movement from the age of 16. Um, at 30, he became senior pastor uh, in a church. And now, just a few years later, he is now recanting everything he wrote in his book. He has apologized to all of the homosexual community. Um, and he has said, I no longer consider myself a Christian by the definitions I understand of what Christianity is. And you might say, what happened? This is a preacher's uh, a son, and you raised in it, and, uh, and he described him, his entire ministry time as I was one of the young, restless, and reformed. That's because they were in the Calvinist church movement. Uh, and so that's, he, was, he considered his whole generation of millennials uh, as young, restless, reformed. And, um, and recanting it. Now, did he have belief? Little b. Did he have knowledge? Did he have? Yeah. And even to this day, his, his declaration is that he is, he's not disavowing that there is a God. He's just disavowing that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. How would you like your senior pastor to get up? No, he didn't get up. Tweet that. This week. Devastating, isn't it? This is very real, people, what we're talking about. John's Gospel, 1 John, these are very real things. And I am not about, if, if Joshua Harris this week declares that, and of course every media outlet has been covering it. In fact, I just showed up on my news feed again last night. It's not going to be let go. Because they love it. black eye on Christianity. Well, no, it's something that's been going on since Jesus' day. One of his 12. One of his inner 12 was the son of perdition. So I am not about to pretend that this isn't something of value to us to examine the world and to examine ourselves that that might not be where we end up after 
spending all your life in Christianity to say, well, I don't really believe any of this, and I'm, I'm, I'm rejecting everything I taught everybody through all those times, in all that best-selling book. Not just rejecting the, the content of it, rejecting the life of it, and turning your entire life away from it. These are very real issues of our day. This is what's going on today around us. We are in the midst of the falling away that the scripture speaks of. It has been going on for well into 50 years now. And the son of, the next son of perdition, the, the, the man of sin, uh, we are told will come, will not come until the falling away comes first. And we are in the midst of the falling away. That church after church, denomination after denomination has rejected God's word, has rejected its moral code, has rejected its truth, has rejected Jesus Christ, has rejected creation, has rejected it all. From cover to cover, there is nothing they can stand on. We are in that time. We are in a dark time of Christianity, darker than the dark ages. Because we claim to be in the light, but we walk in darkness. And this is the most hideous darkness of all. So please, when we come to this passage, and we look into these men's lives, and we see God at work in them, recognize this is what we are encountering today. This is not an aberration. This is the norm. This is what you are facing well, you are being enticed to and drawn to by the world, by your own flesh, and by the devil himself. Please be attentive. And do not just discount, oh, those Pharisees. Those Pharisees were in the synagogue every week, week by week. Just like you and I. So let's look at them. Verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. We're going to stop right there and, and evaluate this group, okay, very quickly. Uh, and again, don't disconnect yourself from this and thinking, those guys, Number one, I want you to recognize that they acknowledged the signs. They were not gathering around saying, this is fake news. No, they weren't challenging it. They weren't, they weren't trying to undermine it. They were like, this is incredible. We can't, these signs are happening. They recognized the signs. They recognize the power of Jesus' work. He's raising the dead. He's making blind men see. They have, been, they have been taken to the carpet by beggars. And here, they are confronted with the necessity of the signs. Now, later on, we're going to find out that many of the rulers of the Jews did believe, but they were afraid to make it public for fear of the Jews because they'd be put out of the synagogue. That's, that's, I think, probably capital B belief. Okay? They, and hopefully they're the ones that are going to come 
forward that, that James talks about. They were zealous for the law and, and Christ. And uh, we don't know if they ever got to the full cap beliefs. Not for us to judge, thank goodness. But here at this point, they know these are real signs. And they're asking the question, what shall we do? He's working not just a sign here and there. He's working many of them. He's working them powerfully. He's working them in front of the crowds, and there's no denying it. We know the scriptures. We know what these signs mean. Uh, we are committed to the law of Moses. We know that Moses told us to look for a prophet like him and that we should listen to him. But what are we going to do? They're confronted with the truth, and now they must decide. What? are we going to do? But I want you to notice the one thing they have excluded from their choices. We will not believe in him. That is one thing that they have excluded from their choice of what are we going to do? Because it says in the next verse, it says if we leave him alone, all right, uh, the whole world, everyone will believe in him. And of course I read that and say, well, what's wrong with that? Everyone will believe in him. And there was a Roman Caesar that thought that was a good idea. So let's just declare the entire empire Christian, and that was the beginning of the end. Because when everyone walks around with lowercase b-e-l-i-e-f, the world's in trouble. These men all believed. They believed in God. They believed in the Creator. They believed in the Law of Moses. They believed in your entire Old Testament. They believed in the sign. They believed the signs were signs that they couldn't speak against. They could not make them go away. They couldn't explain them away. They could not just reject them. And so they believed all of that, and yet there was something more important to them than salvation of the world. And they expose it. They speak it of it among themselves. And you wonder, how did John get this information? Remember, there were some among them who were believers but were afraid to talk. They were probably the capital B belief but not the full cap belief. So they would have re reported all this in the church age. They were testifiers of this. Here's what they said. The Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Priority for them? was not the salvation of everyone. It wasn't even their own. It wasn't recognizing the Messiah. They were concerned about their place, that is their authority, their privilege that they have within the Roman Empire to function as an independent religious group. And we need to recognize that that was a rarity in the Roman Empire, um, but it was afforded to the Jews. It was afforded there in Jerusalem, and it wasn't going to be long. And by 70 AD, that's not going to be permitted. Really, 67 was when it all started to break down, and the siege on Jerusalem began. And so then Jews started being hunted from that point on, from 67 on, and they were slaughtered by the thousands, tens of thousands in Damascus. And so in other places, they were rounded up and, and just slain. Um, and so right now, I want you to notice they are afraid of their place and their na national existence. But the thing is, their nation didn't actually exist at this point. It was enveloped in the Roman Empire, and it was only 
a facade. In fact, the very next verse is going to confirm that for you. It says, Caiaphas, look at this one. One of them, Caiaphas 49, being high priest that year. Now, that might just kind of go right over your head. But if you read that carefully, every Jewish person is going, Ugh. that was the year Caiaphas was the high priest. Now, why was there, there's only allowed to be one high priest in Israel, and he served the entirety of his life. This was not an elected position that had term limits. Uh, well, it was a term limited year, only one term, and it's your whole life. So I guess it was term limited. But um, you had served it your entire life. But Israel, at this point, had multiple high priests, because if one high priest wasn't pulling his weight properly, according to the Roman, they came in and appointed somebody else. So even in the exercise of their faith, they didn't have the liberty they claimed. They thought they did, but it was comfortable. They learned how to work with the Romans, and they learned how to kind of uh, be, even though if they be uh, in some authority and yet under authority. And so they didn't really exist as a nation, and really they didn't exist as a people, as, an, as a religious institution. Because the Romans were ultimately calling the shots. Not Moses, not the law, but they were comfortable in that they had learned how to function in that relationship. And let's face it, they were fat, they were well-clothed, and they had lots of authority, and they had beautiful homes. As long as you cooperated with the Romans, got along with everybody, just kind of blend in a little bit. Yeah, we don't intermarry with them, and we, and we don't eat with them, and things like that. Um, we still keep a semblance of separateness. But ultimately, we, we're going to appease them, then we can have a really fat life. Sound familiar? This is the invitation of the evil one to every follower of Jesus Christ. Don't make waves. Don't get too radical about your faith. Let, because, you know, you, you want to get along with them. And I've been hearing it my entire ministry life. Back in the 80s, it was the big thing. Well, if we're going to reach the lost, we got to go to them. We got to look like them, act like them, listen to, that, to their music. We got to behave like them. That's how we're going to reach them. And separatism just took a dive. The idea that we're called out to be separate, to be distinct, distinguishable. Then they walk in the room, they can say, that's a Christian, that's a Christian, that's a Christian. They just boom, boom, boom. And I'm not just talking about dress and, and, and appearances, um, but there's, there should be a, a distinguishing difference in your countenance, in your caring of yourself, and yes, it, that we should be a modest people. It should be evident. They should not take them very long of having a relationship with you to know this is a follower of Jesus Christ. They are different. And ask you, why is it so weird about you? But no, what the Christian community was pushing was, was that we go down and we, and we just put our words to their music and we put their clothes on and we just throw in Jesus loves you every now and then in the song and that's how we're going to reach them. We're going to go down and live with them. We're not going to be a light set on a hill. We're going to be a, a flashlight moving around in the murk. 
And somehow that's going to be not realizing that flashlights in the Merc kind of go dead. And that's what happened. Christianity went dead. Because we got down into the muck and we became the muck. And our light stopped shining because we weren't anything to attract anyone to. And we're still in that condition. It wasn't overnight that suddenly churches started having first women pastors and now homosexual pastors. That started 50 years ago. Certainly 40 years ago when we started inviting all of our young people, you don't have to be so weird. Get along with the Romans and have a pretend faith, just like the Pharisees had a pretend nation and a pretend place, a pretend religion, because it wasn't fulfilling the law of Moses. It was very evident that they weren't. They did not have true liberty. They did not have a national presence. They were ruled by the governors uh, and we're going to meet them. We're going to meet Herod. We're going to meet Pilate. We're going to later in Acts meet Felix and Festus and all these people. Well, none of them had Herod maybe uh, some claim to it. Kind of crooked, but certainly not of the tribe of, of the son of David. And so we come to this and they are deceived. And this is what the evil one does. He deceives us, doesn't he? He deceives us and says, listen, I'm fat, I've got a nice house, I've got nice wheels, I've got clothes, I've got food, I've got a nice job, I've got a place in the community, and as long as I don't ruffle any feathers, this is a pretty good life. I can go to church on Sunday, synagogue Saturday, um, but not the Saturday you think of. Uh, if you uh, I shouldn't have gone there. Um, and so we, we see all of this, and we go... Well, that's us, and we should rightly place ourselves. We are so concerned about our place and our nation, our permitted, and, and all the fatness that is given us, and we confuse that with God blessing us. Let me share with you what the New Testament concept of the blessing of God in your life is. You must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. That is the New Testament teaching of God's blessing. But we have confused that because we are raised in America that the evidence of God's blessing is that we never have famine. The evidence of God's blessing is we have lots of stuff. The evidence of God's blessing is we have military prowess. The evidence of God's blessing is all these things of this world. Ease and comfort is the evidence of God's blessing. But the Bible doesn't say that. That is the promises to Israel as a nation. The promises to the church are, you want to be blessed? Take up your cross. Follow me. Suffer for my name's sake. Why did the disciples leave getting beaten up, <clears throat> walk out and rejoice that they are counted worthy of suffering for his name's sake? Because they knew the evidence of God's blessing is that the world hates you. If they hated Jesus, they should hate you. The world cozying up and feeling comfortable around you should frighten you because you are in a cat, lowercase b-e-l-i-e-f and that kind of belief does not save you from eternal destruction. These men had that belief. 
They believed the same God, Jehovah, you did. They believed in Moses. They believed in the signs. They knew those were real signs. But when they asked, what should we do? They could not move themselves to follow Jesus with all that they are and all that they have. No, they opposed him. We have to stop him or he's going to disrupt our comfort level. And there are plenty of preachers that aren't preaching today because of that very thing. Because their congregation says, we're going to stop this man from preaching because he's making us uncomfortable. And there are churches maxed out with multiple services because they found a man who will stand up there and tell them, you're all wonderful. And you just got to reach your potential. And God will just take anything you can give him because he's desperate. And he's lucky to have us. If you don't think that's what they're preaching, you're not paying attention. Oh, they don't use those exact words, but that's what they mean. And they tell you to love yourself and to rebel. Not against the status quo, rebel against God in righteousness and adapt to the status quo. And that's what we are confronting. We are in these verses. So Caiaphas is raised up, and here that was all extra from my sermon. So now Caiaphas comes on the scene, and you say, can God do anything in this kind of, among a group of lowercase b-e-l-i-f, can God still work? Yes. If God can use a donkey's mouth, he can use a little b believer's mouth. And yeah, in some times, in even those environments where everybody's worried about being comfortable and just cruising through life, ease and, and without upsetting anyone's apple cart, without ever having to uh, break off relationships with family and friends. Um, yes, even in those environments, occasionally God's word gets put out there. And here's Caiaphas. In this environment where everyone's worried about, we don't want to lose our good place. We got nothing good going here. Let's not mess it up by following this guy, Jesus. Never mind they can raise the dead and feed the 5,000 and make the blind see. Those things aren't good enough. Here's Caiaphas. Even in the midst of this horrible environment, Caiaphas gets up and verse 49, you know nothing at all. And you go, finally, someone's going to stand up and really preach this stuff. You guys are ignorant. That's what he's saying. You know nothing at all. That's what ignorance means. You don't know what you're talking about. Here he goes. <clears throat> Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. And some manuscripts have it you, but we're going to stick with us. It's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, wait a minute. That, what do you mean? You just They were struggling they were struggling with the, the tension that we struggle with, and hopefully you're struggling with today. The tension of saying, this stuff is all truth, but I like the way I live my life. And that is the tension that you're going to have as you confront people with the gospel out there, and that's why the ones who are usually most recipient of the gospel are those that have miserable lives. 
That's why jail ministries are so good. That's why inner city ministries are so effectual, because they're miserable. But we don't have very many miserable people in this. Well, we, we have a lot of people full of despair, but they are not really miserable. We are even, I, I go down, I'm like, oh, they got food, they got shelter, they got cell phones. What do they need? They don't really want more. And some of them had it all and said, eh, I didn't want to live in the rat race. And so this transient life is for me. I got no responsibilities. And yes, that is a lifestyle that people choose because they don't want to carry responsibility for a family. They don't want to carry responsibility in a society. They just want to live for themselves. They want to be able to go wherever they want, do whatever they want, whenever they want. And so even among the transient community, there's not misery. We don't recognize it. And these people are like, we got this all going for us, and we're, all, we're going to encounter that. And so Jesus Christ is the enemy because he's going to disrupt our comfort. He's going to disrupt the life I enjoy so much. God's going to disrupt my life. But what they don't realize is their life is death. And one man stands up and says, you don't know anything at all. It is expedient. Expedient as a word just says, it's convenient for the time. Expediency, what is convenient for the time, is expedient. This works for today. For right now, what's best, what works is for us, is that one mind die rather than the whole nation. Instead of us going out and having our whole nation threatened, our way of life threatened, it is better just to get rid of that one man. And this is the message from the high priest that is going to motivate the people, the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, um, to hunt down Jesus and to ultimately crucify him. This is going to be the directive, and I want you to notice, John says, this isn't from Caiaphas, this isn't from, this is from the Lord. Remember that Jesus has been picking fights for a couple of years, certainly for the last year, and particularly in the last few months, has been picking fights by doing things in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Because he's trying to make this thing happen. Um, the Bible talks about God allowing people's sin to get to its fullest before he destroys them. And part of this, here comes the Holy Spirit by prophetic movement upon Caiaphas as the high priest that year, is now prophesying something, and he's going to prophesy, we're going to kill this man. And he's going to die for all of us. He is being killed for us. We are killing him for our benefit. Now, in his mind, he didn't understand what that meant that Jesus Christ's death would be for his sin as well as the world's. In his mind, he was going back to what they were talking about, but the Holy Spirit meant something very different by using those words. And if this, con if this concerns you, that the Holy Spirit uses uh, unbelievers essentially to prophesy, um, it shouldn't because we have that happening in Scripture regularly in the Old Testament, right? Some great prophets, Balaam, that's the guy the donkey talked to. 
not once, not twice, three times, was paid to curse Israel and got up there and God says, you're going to bless them. And the guy's like, the king that hired him was like, going crazy, what are you doing? We have, again and again, uh, we have Nebuchadnezzar being given a dream. We have Pharaoh given a dream. All these are, were unbelievers when they were given this, this information by God to affect the deliverance of people, of God's people. And so Joseph didn't get the dream about the seven fat and the seven skinny. Pharaoh did. Joseph was in prison at the time. Nebuchadnezzar got the dream, not Daniel, but it elevated Daniel, elevated the other dream, elevated Joseph, and then they could effectuate the deliverance of God's people. And so Caiaphas has given this prophetic utterance, one man should die for the nation. And indeed, um, this is God's doing to, to move them to put a hook, it, so to speak, in their mouth and to bring them to the point of saying, we are righteous by killing the righteous one. They are self-justifying. We are righteous by killing the righteous one. And, of course, it was not. And then we have this wonderful explanation from John. Look at verse um, 50, well, we'll read 51, 52. Now this he did not say on his own authority. Being high priest uh, that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. The people were concerned that everyone's going to believe in Jesus. We got to stop this. Caiaphas comes up and says, we just got to kill him. It's better to kill one man than to kill a nation. We're going to kill him for the benefit of our nation. And John comes on and says, not just one nation, it's the nation of God, which is drawn from all the nations. And you and I, this is our place. Verse 52 is our place. He didn't just die for Israel. He died for all his church. He died for all men and could draw from all nations that they, everyone who believes will have eternal life. And having heard those words, it says from that day on, they plowed to put him to death. And therefore Jesus, in response to that, knowing that that had happened, even though he wasn't at the meeting, he is open, ministry comes to an end, and it says he no longer openly walked among them, he went until the triumphal entry, which is the Passion Week, which together can be considered his crucifixion. And we find him going back across, hiding, if you will. Some say he's hiding. He's going to go out into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. The Passover is on its way. People are arriving in Jerusalem. Jesus leaves Jerusalem. I want you to notice that. As people are starting to come, why are they coming so early? Because they're traveling from a great distance. People are coming in addition, John tells us, to purify themselves. So some people are making pilgrimage from Rome, from Greece, from all over to try to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. Isn't that the Passover? Next year in Jerusalem. 
And so they're making these pilgrimages there, and they're arriving, plus others who are coming there who are some of the um, more committed ones will come there to purify themselves because it's not just a religious uh, observance for them. It is, it is not just a one-day or even a one-week thing. They want to invest themselves fully in it. They're coming there to purify themselves. And as they arrive, everyone wants to know, where is Jesus? They don't want to go to the Sanhedrin. They don't want to, they want to encounter this person they've heard about, Jesus Christ. I want you to recognize that the testimony of Jesus Christ had penetrated near and far. That everyone coming to Jerusalem that year was only interested in hearing one person speak, and that person was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has just made himself unavailable. He has set his own trap. God has prophetically put it in the hearts of the leaders of the people to have Jesus crucified, to have him murdered. Did they want it to happen during the Passover? Certainly not. But that was God's action. Why were they unable to do it until then? Because it wasn't the right time. They wanted to do it earlier. They tried to do it earlier and failed. Now they have a unified goal of doing it, and they have been declared by the high priest to be righteous in doing it. And so now they're going to pour every effort, and they have the word sent out. Anyone sees Jesus, send word to us. We're going to seize him. They have just put out an all-points bulletin for his arrest. And he's going to show up at the gate with a crowd is the next time we're going to visit him. But I want you to see these people had all the comforts this world can afford. They knew the truth. They had the law. They believed in God. They recognized the signs for what they were. And when it came down to the question of what should we do, they moved against Jesus Christ instead of with him. And we see it going on today. And it is shattering. The Christian community, the evangelical community, those that are believing that we have more authority and power and are in better condition than we really are, in Christianity in this country, are reeling this week from the news of just one man, just one man's falling away. Because we put these men up on pedestals and we follow them instead of Jesus and his word. And this one man, Caiaphas, gets up and everyone feels righteous about doing this now. Now I feel better about it. And so let's hunt this guy down. And that isn't going to be something that's going to end with Jesus. They're going to feel righteous about beating up the disciples. They're going to feel righteous about stoning Stephen. They're going to feel righteous about hunting down Paul all, and taking vows that we're going to kill him or not eat. I wonder how skinny they got before they start eating again because they didn't get a chance. They're going to feel righteous about this because they did not recognize that what Caiaphas said was that Jesus would die for the benefit of them. He is dying for them. 
But what they took it said, we are right to kill him for ourselves. Do not confuse the idea that you're looking out for your own interests with capital B, capital E, capital L, capital I, capital E, capital F. Because when you truly, truly believe, there's only one person's interest that you are looking out for, and that is God's. You are living your life for Jesus Christ, which means I see despair, I'm going to react like Jesus reacted when he saw despair, and I will weep at it. I will not sneer at it. When I see unrighteousness, I will become indignant at it as Christ did. As he cleansed the temple and says, how dare you turn my father's house into a place of business? I will not say, how can I get my cut? This is how we respond when we recognize that we live for Jesus. We are called to give him our all. And if you find yourself living for yourself, and that is the priority, your stuff, your relationships, your comforts, your joys, whatever is important to you, and, re, and, and it never crossed your mind, what is important to God today? What is important to Jesus Christ for me to do, say, and act this day? How can I serve him this day? Then my brethren, you need to really challenge yourself to get to another level of belief. And I am not going to just distribute guarantees of eternal life with lowercase belief. Jesus didn't, John didn't, and I'm not about to. Even with capital B beliefs, like Joshua Harris, that can take you pretty far. And by the way, he's not the first preacher to do this. Okay, I remember as a teen that the president of Tennessee Temple University, a big Christian, very conservative school, uh, getting up and declaring that, that uh, he just got saved the night before. <laughs> At least he got saved. But he had to resign. And everyone was like, ah, he baptized me and he wasn't a Christian. <laughs> no, we can't put our trust in men. We can't put our trust in ourselves. We do not put our trust in the world. We do not put our trust there. Our trust is in Jesus Christ and it's for him we ought to be living. And if anything on this life becomes more exciting to you, then you're in trouble. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word. We pray that we might live according to it, follow you all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.